Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Under cover of darkness, 10 Afghan fighters in full combat gear line up along the front wall of a house in Parwan province. One steps in front of the door, bangs four times, yells a warning, kicks the door open, then rushes in with his assault rifle drawn. I'm watching rare footage of Afghan special forces in the midst of a night raid on a suspected Taliban bomb-making compound. This video from Al Jazeera is from 2013, but it gives me a glimpse into the secretive world of the Afghan National Strike Units in action. These special forces, also known as the Zero Units, are a clandestine anti-terrorism force operating in partnership with the U.S. intelligence community and the military, though the American government has released very little information about them. They captured and sometimes killed enemy targets from al-Qaeda, ISIS, the Taliban, or Haqqani, and defended against incursions in government-controlled areas. What we can say is that these Afghan special forces did much of the fighting and the dying in the war on terror in Afghanistan. One former CIA officer told me that for every American casualty in the war, Afghans, including those in the Zero Units, suffered 27 times as many. Though we know so little about them, many of the Afghans who are now in our U.S. communities served in these units. The father and one family I'm about to meet is one of them. In fact, his family just moved in to Jenny Hua's neighborhood. I've pulled up in front of the address where Jenny sent me. I've driven 45 minutes south from Salt Lake City to this little town called Cedar Hills, a bedroom community built as high as possible on the slopes of Mount Timpanogos, one of the tallest peaks in the Wasatch Range. This is the very edge of the population center. The end of the block fades up into mountain wilderness. Roads and sidewalks turn to trails and sagebrush. This quiet, well-groomed neighborhood is populated almost entirely by members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Jenny isn't here yet, but I decide to go knock on the door of the basement apartment, which is through a gate and on the side of the house. There's no answer. I'm alone out here, except in the backyard, I spot a blonde little head hiding near the swing set. A young spy monitoring the stranger with headphones and a microphone. Think about how unlikely this situation is. To the east, trails lead up the mountains that are still capped with spring snow. To the west, there's a view over the whole valley descending into a deep blue lake. It's beautiful, but we're miles from refugee services. Why is this family living way out here? From KSL Podcasts, I'm Andrea Smartin, and this is Stranger Becomes Neighbor, Episode 5, the need for friendship. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. 
Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. The reason I was watching footage of Afghan special forces on a night raid was because the soldiers I've interviewed are tight-lipped about their experience. They don't talk much about it. Until the Taliban takeover and the evacuation from Afghanistan, these U.S.-backed counter-terrorist forces were accustomed to secrecy. Speaking through a translator, this zero-unit fighter, who will call Mohammed, just says it was dangerous work. He says his goals and those of the Americans were aligned. Mohammed, who is Hazara, a persecuted minority in Afghanistan, says they had a common enemy in the Taliban. Muhammad's wife, who we'll call Aziza, says when her husband was working, she never knew if he would come back alive. Anytime there was a suicide attack in Kabul, she worried. He didn't have access to a phone when he was on missions, and it would sometimes be weeks before she heard from him. They accepted these risks, but Muhammad never thought about what would happen if the Americans left. No, we were not thinking of the day that now we see in Afghanistan. Mohammed was worried about his wife and their two children and the baby they were expecting. My biggest fear is their security, my family's security. Until the evacuation in August 2021, the outside world knew very little about these secretive units. But now, people like Mohammed are living among us. It was not what he planned, but his choice to work with Americans brought him to the U.S. Uh, and landed him in Miami, Florida. Growing up in the arid land of Afghanistan, Mohammed had never felt such tropical heat and humidity. It was so hot, he says. Mohammed, Aziza, who was pregnant, and their two young children found themselves stuck sweating it out in a hotel in Miami. There was no one to help us, he says. Well, there was the refugee agency. But what Mohammed means is he didn't have any friends in Florida. Refugees are usually at the mercy of the government and the nonprofit agencies charged with helping them. But this family made another choice. After a month, they took a gamble. They abandoned the government resources offered to them in Florida and decided to head to Utah. Aziz's sister lived there, and so did a couple men Mohammed knew from the Zero units. Basically, they jumped and just hoped their friends and family would be able to catch them. Shortly after they arrived, in early spring 2022, Muhammad and Aziza were invited to a party in a suburb south of Salt Lake City, where about 15 recently arrived Afghans were packed into a little duplex. Downstairs, the women and children were dancing, while the men gathered upstairs. Muhammad and Aziza didn't know it then, but coming to this party would set their lives on a different course. While there, they met Jenny Hua, who just happened to drive up that night from her home in Cedar Hills for the party. She heard their story 
that they left Miami in a leap of faith and came to Salt Lake City. Aziza was obviously pregnant, and Jenny was worried about her. The next day, she went to visit them where they were staying in a two-bedroom apartment with another Afghan family they knew from the Zero units. They came to Utah with their only possession was three blankets. They were staying in the spare bedroom of one of the other new Afghan families who I've been working with. Their hosts were recent arrivals themselves and were dependent on government support. And they're staying in a spare bedroom and sharing food stamps <laughs> with another family who has nothing. They had a spare bed and then they had um, the two kids sleeping on the floor. And then she was due in like two and a half weeks, three weeks. Jenny was determined to find them a home before the baby was born, but she didn't have a lot of time or options. There was an affordable housing shortage. She thought about her neighbors, David and Aurora Nino and their empty basement apartment. Jenny didn't have to say much to convince Aurora, a mother of four. I found out the mom was pregnant, and I had just barely had a my fourth baby. My bleeding heart was like, oh, they have no car, no caseworker, no connections. How is she going to get to the hospital? And I was like, okay, you need to move in, like, now. But Jenny's neighborhood was far from the family and friends Mohammed and Aziza had in Salt Lake City. At first, they declined the offer. But then they talked to Salim's father, the commander, who had seen Jenny in action. He convinced Mohammed that she and her neighbors would help his family with whatever they needed. This was important because the family would also be moving far from refugee services. Normally, when a refugee leaves the place where they're resettled, the agencies are no longer obliged to provide resources. So when Mohammed and Aziza moved to Utah, they had given that up. But they were lucky. Another refugee organization, the Asian Association of Utah, agreed to help them. Jenny talked to the agency about the idea of moving the family to her neighborhood. They were wary because it's far away from their offices. And I was like, we will take care of them. We will help them. I'll advocate for them and keep in contact with you guys. They're going to have a really nice experience integrating here. And, you know, we'll keep open communication and everything. And so they decided, yeah, okay, well, we'll let you guys go ahead and try that. The agency agreed to pay their rent for a limited time. And the family moved in to the basement apartment. But when Jenny promised to help them with whatever they needed, she may not have realized just how intimately involved she would get. I said, when you have the baby, um, do you want me to find a way to get your sister here so that she can be with you? She's like, no, 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 no. I want you to come for the baby and my sister to watch the kids at home. And I'm like, how about your husband? Do you want him to come for the baby? And she's like, I guess he can come. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm like, okay, let me get this right. You want me to come when you deliver your baby and you want your sister to watch the kids? And she's like, yes. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) Jenny was surprised and honored to be asked. But for Aziza, it may have been a practical matter. She didn't know what to expect giving birth in a U.S. hospital. Having an American with her could be helpful. Aziza's children didn't speak English, so having her sister watch them along with her sister's kids made sense. Jenny was just hoping the baby would come at a time when she could slip away from her own family responsibilities. 
It was a busy day. It was like tumbling and karate and... (laughs) And, and so I'm like, okay, you go here and you go here and you go here. And I just lined that up and told my husband to make dinner. <laughs> I'm like, got to deliver a baby. Jenny told me it was a very intimate experience to have with someone she only knew for a couple of weeks. It's like we grew up together since kindergarten or something. <laughs> so, yeah, the midwife's like, yeah, you, she's like, husband, you are you go up there by her head and hold her hand. And she's like, you come down here and help me. At my request, Jenny made a recording on her phone at the hospital, but she didn't want to invade the family's privacy. So she just recorded her own thoughts when she had a moment alone. It's 11.05 p.m., and I feel so honored that my friends have asked me to come in and experience this incredible moment with them. We've been waiting and watching, and it's getting close to time to have the baby be born. Keep you posted. It was a long and difficult labor, but just as the doctors were considering interventions, the baby was born. The doctors went out and they give you that moment of, of peace. Aziza was exhausted and gave the baby to Jenny to hold. And he was just so sweet and precious, alert, looking around. His eyes were open and just like his... His sweet, soft cheeks were against my arm and just looking at me. And I just felt like, wow, like, I'm your new auntie. <laughs> How you doing? And uh, that, was, that was a sweet, sweet, silent moment um, together with a new family. About a month after the baby is born is when I arrived in Jenny's neighborhood to meet the family for the first time. You ready to wake up, see the world? Very new baby. Yes. Very young. One month and five days. One month, five days. Oh, and Jenny was there the first day, right? (laughs) Jenny reaches out to take the baby who's swaddled tightly with just his face and a tuft of hair sticking out. Jenny's going to leave soon because it's time for English class. I have to hold him for a minute first. Because he's so sweet. While Jenny coos at the baby, a volunteer named Carolyn has been setting up an easel with huge sheets of paper and large words printed on them with drawings along the side. It looks like something you might see in a kindergarten classroom. What day is it today? Today is Chambis in this. All I can think is this scene is a world apart from the video I watched of a night raid in Parwan province. Yes. And which month is it? Month, uh, May and 25. Good. It's May, uh, 20, May 20. 20. We can say May 25. Or May Since this family is so far away from refugee services, Jenny has arranged for an English tutor to come to them. She's a retired grade school teacher, and she also had training 
teaching English language learning. So she comes three times a week in the afternoon. But Carolyn's tutoring is just one piece in a whole program Jenny is putting together. It's like three times a day. A couple of days are just two times a day. And then I think three times a week is three times a day. So they have a morning, afternoon, and evening session So of English learning. There's a volunteer basically coming every day? There's more than one volunteer coming every day. Yeah. As the English lesson comes to a close, Carolyn reads with the kids, and I get a chance to talk to Mohammed and Aziza. Though without a translator, our communication is limited. Are you learning a lot of English? Yes. Yes? Yes. You have many teachers now. Yes, good. Teacher. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Teacher is very good. Yes. Mohammed lists off other neighbors who've helped him with various things, including babysitting, rides, donations. In fact, just before I arrived, a neighbor had taken them shopping to buy clothes for the family. Jenny says it takes many people, more than you might think. I would say like probably 12 people help them consistently on an ongoing basis. And still, I feel sort of swamped, just like kind of guiding them and and helping them to like find their way and like identify their goals and then make plans to reach those goals. It's been a whirlwind. Their landlord, Aurora, who lives upstairs, says she's constantly finding things on her porch, a box of diapers or other baby supplies being donated. There's a steady stream of people coming by. Maybe we should like have visiting hours. (laughs) Aurora says she's watched Mohammed's facial expressions change over the few weeks since he arrived. When he first came, he has seen so much war and that that face of just that what he's experienced in his life, just that hardened, worn face. And it, within like one month to see him smile so much, to see him laugh, to see him play with his kids, to it just it's almost like he's a different person, even within like a month of being here. Over the next few months, Jenny and the neighbors send me texts and photos Someone takes Mohammed to a job interview at Walmart. Someone donates a car. The eight-year-old girl upstairs is reading with the eight-year-old girl downstairs. There's a photo of Mohammed lying reclined in a dental chair. And then there are fun things, like a party in the basement apartment with platters of Afghan food and dancing, girls' soccer games, kids sprawled on the trampoline, tie-dyeing shirts in the backyard. And in the summer, Jenny leaves me a voicemail saying she's taking Aziza and some of her friends to a lake. Hey, Andrea, it's Jenny. I just have to tell you about my latest adventure. Now I'm taking three gals swimming for the first time ever in their lives. Aziza and some of her friends have watched their children play in pools, but they don't feel comfortable going swimming themselves in public. They've never ever been, and um, they insist on wearing long pants. But they are going to get in the water. And I just wanted to let you know how much fun we're having. Later, I talked to Mohammed and Aziza with a translator. They are very grateful to Jenny, to their landlords, and all the neighbors for everything they've done. Mohammed says he's surprised at how much support he's received in the U.S. coming here as a stranger. He says people don't even do so much for their own children in Afghanistan. So it's a good move. Uh, yeah, it was a good move. 
I asked them if they've had any moments of joy since they came to the U.S. And Mohammed's answer, given everything he's been through in his life, surprises me. Yeah, uh, every moment is uh, joy for us, joyful for us. Every moment. Every moment, yes. Every moment is joyful. This answer is heartwarming to hear. But it's also unexpected when you think about their inauspicious start in Miami. Their choice, which some might consider risky, to reject the path the U.S. government laid out for them and put themselves in the hands of friends and then of perfect strangers, somehow worked out. But it might not have. I can't help but wonder, what about all the other evacuees? It's a question that came up when I went to Jenny's neighborhood and talked with volunteers there. Those helping with English classes actually hadn't met each other before. They were surprised to find out just how many people had been helping Mohammed, Aziza, and their children. All these resources were being funneled to just one family. They wondered, what about all the others? In the spring of 2023, Jenny introduced me to someone who revealed a very different outcome for how things can go. His name is Arif Haidari, and his life situation is very similar to Mohammed's. He also served in the Afghan Special Forces. In fact, the same zero unit. He and his wife have a young son, almost two years old, and a baby due in just over a month. He recently sent Jenny a picture, but it's not a fun neighborhood event or a milestone achieved. It's a notice of eviction. We'll meet this family after the break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever hear that voice in your head that won't stop talking? For me, my thoughts start racing when I'm lying in bed and all I want to do is sleep. What a relief to discover there's a way to make those thoughts go away. Therapy gives you a place to talk them through so you can get out of your negative thought cycles and find some peace. Once you let go of the chatter in your head, you can tune in to a more helpful voice that empowers you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get a break from your thoughts with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash neighbor today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash neighbor. Hello, I'm Andrea. I'm visiting RF's apartment with Jenny and a translator to find out more about his situation. He lives in a two-story complex in West Valley City, the second largest city in Utah, just one block off from a busy road with two used car lots at the intersection. Not exactly like the waterfalls and snow-capped peaks of Cedar Hills, but there are enough trees and grass amidst the pavement for some birds to make their home. Thank you. Come on in. Okay. Thank you. 
In Arif's living room, a deep red floral carpet covers the floor from wall to wall. The only furniture are cushions stacked up against the wall. Okay, we have a little person here. (laughs) We sit on the floor with Arif's son, who plays with a few large Legos. What is your son's name? Ibrahim Bek. And your wife? Nick Bacht. Do you want to come join? Arif's wife, who is almost eight months pregnant, declines to join the interview. Sometimes she hovers while we talk, and sometimes she's in the kitchen preparing food, while Arif fills me in on their predicament. Arif has been out of work for five months. A resettlement agency had been covering his rent until they stopped this month, and he didn't realize it until he got a notice that his rent is overdue. His apartment is about $1,500 a month, and now he has a $900 fine for late payment. According to an eviction notice, if he doesn't pay in three days, he will have to move out. Well, that sounds really hard, stressful. Yes, he says, I don't know English. I don't know how to solve my problems. Jenny says she's worried about Arif's family. Yeah, I mean, because he got an eviction notice, so they're going to evict him if he doesn't do something about it. The resettlement agency has government funds to pay the rent for just about a year. I think if you didn't get established during that, then you're in quite a predicament. And Arif has been asking you for help? Yeah, we'll help to find a job and now help to figure out how not to get kicked out of his house. As I dig a little deeper, I learn that Arif's family has had some extra challenges on top of the language barrier and lack of work history in the country. He was employed at a hotel for three months, but his wife's health made keeping that job and getting her to medical appointments impossible. Communicating through a translator, it's not clear what her health issues are, but she's pregnant and has appointments every week, sometimes two in a day. Without family or a support system, he had to miss work to drive her and help her navigate the complicated American healthcare system. He's especially careful with her health as they've dealt with tragedy before. In Afghanistan, she was pregnant with their first child when she contracted COVID, and she was not allowed in the hospital. Their baby died at home in utero while Arif was at work. He's terrified that something like that could happen again and they would lose their baby. Eventually, he had to make a choice, care for his wife or keep his job. He left the hotel job because he thought he could get another job, maybe one with more flexibility. But that turned out to be more challenging than he expected. He's applied for about 15 positions, but nothing has panned out. A couple of times he says he thought he had a job, but after some training, he never started work and he didn't know why. That's how he's ended up unemployed for five months. But maybe his luck is changing. He says he just landed a job with FedEx that starts the following week. That's great. For this coming Monday? I mean, Dushanbe Kimiya. Yes, this coming Monday. Yeah, that's awesome. He'll be a package handler, graveyard shift, so he can still drive to doctor appointments. But even with the promise of a new job, new stability, he won't get paid for at least a week after he starts working. He still doesn't have the money to pay the rent. Their baby is coming soon, and they don't know if they will have a home. Ask Arif if he knows his neighbors in the apartment complex, and he says no. 
The neighbors above him and to the right have all changed since he's been here. Their son can't go and play on his own, so he hasn't met any neighborhood children his age. The three of them spend most days inside their small apartment together. Without a job, without a community to help them navigate this new world, they're limited to just trying to survive. If they do socialize, they gather with other Afghan families, but most of them don't live nearby, so they don't see friends very often, at least not on a daily basis. It's like night and day when you compare it to Muhammad's situation. In both cases, Jenny is trying to help. But in one case, she recruited her neighborhood and built an entire network of support. Muhammad's family had a whole host of people coming by on a constant basis, giving them rides, taking care of their kids so they could go to job interviews and English classes, and inviting them to neighborhood gatherings. In Arif's case, she's tried to help where she could, but she's just one person, and she doesn't live nearby. I ask Arif the same question that I had asked Mohammed. Have you had any good or happy moments since you've come to the U.S.? He says after they arrived in the U.S., his wife's mother died in Afghanistan. Then his aunt died in Iran. Understanding through translation is difficult, but I think he's trying to convey just how tough things have been. I'm not sure he can even contemplate my question. How can he think about moments of joy when he's not sure if his family will have a home in a few days? While they suffer through the heartbreak of so much loss, they're struggling just to survive. What is this? <laughs> After we wrap up the interview, Arif's wife lays a tablecloth on the floor and sets out platters of food. Oh, what I did can, you make? This I is can a introduce. whole meal. Oh. There is onions, tomatoes, and eggs. And this is beans and chickpeas for breakfast. As tasty as it looks, I have a sinking feeling in my stomach. They don't have the money to pay their bills. They're on the verge of homelessness, and they're giving me food which they can't afford. At the same time, I'm moved by their generosity. Thank you so much. It was yeah. so, so good. You're welcome, As we leave the apartment, Arif shows Jenny a message that's just come in on his phone. He doesn't recognize the number. Oh. Huh. Yeah, that's Luna. Luna? It's a message from Luna a woman Jenny had contacted who works for the Muslim Civic League. Turns out Luna can help him pay the rent until he gets a paycheck. Yeah, Luna says, can you go to her office to get the rent check? Okay, Okay, so yes, you should go. Tell her what time, text her back and tell her what time you will come. Okay. Okay, Okay, good. Bye. Bye. Okay, parade. Yay, good. I wonder what would have happened if Jenny hadn't called Luna. What would happen if you weren't here? I don't know. (laughs) That's crazy, right? Like, I don't know. Like, would they end up homeless? I guess. Like, I, I cannot imagine being 
whoever evicts them, like the manager or whoever's job it is to roll the rugs up and throw them out into the street. I can't imagine actually going through with that. In the end, Arif ended up getting help covering the rent for May from another organization that helps immigrants and refugees. But that was only a temporary reprieve. Then they found out the rent would be raised to $1,800 a month, and they needed to find something cheaper. Just like Muhammad's family the previous year, they were expecting a baby any day, but they didn't know where they would live when the baby came. After this visit, I kept thinking about Arif's family. Their situation is so precarious, and they're just one family out of more than 80,000 Afghan evacuees in the U.S. They're trying to make it in a country where it's a struggle to find affordable housing for many people, let alone those who don't speak the language and have no U.S. work history. Someone like Arif may have risked his life to execute night raids with Americans, but now that he's here, that doesn't help him pay the rent. Thinking about Arif and Mohammed, the difference in their experience, it begs an obvious question. Why couldn't more families have the support of an entire community like Mohammed's? Is Jenny's neighborhood a model that could be replicated? What if it could be organized and scaled? What if a larger entity, say the federal government, could provide a structure for groups like Jenny's neighborhood to support a family? The State Department is launching the Welcome Corps. As it turns out, that is what's happening. In January 2023, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken announced the Welcome Corps, an opportunity for regular Americans to privately sponsor refugees. Groups of ordinary citizens could now assume the responsibilities normally handled by professional resettlement agencies. The Welcome Corps will allow Americans to do what we do best. Be guides and friends to our new neighbors. Put them on a path to realizing their full potential to the benefit not just of refugee families, but all our families. This idea isn't entirely new. Americans had already been experimenting with it. When the Afghans arrived, there were pilot groups around the country testing out what were called sponsorship circles, similar to what Jenny's neighborhood did, but with more of a formalized structure. According to the program website, more than 4,500 people have contributed to sponsor circles across the country. Then, when Russia invaded Ukraine, the Biden administration asked Americans to do more. We've already welcomed tens of thousands of Ukrainians to the United States. And today, I'm announcing a program, Unite for Ukraine. It will provide an expedient channel for secure legal migration from Europe to the United States for Ukrainians who have a U.S. sponsor, such as a family or an NGO. Under this program, Americans could simply meet Ukrainians over social media and invite them over. It all started when they met that couple on Facebook, had no idea who each other was, and now they're living in their home. If the U.S. sponsors could pass a background check, prove they had the financial means, and the Ukrainians had the valid travel documents, they could come. A year after the Russian invasion, more than a third of the 271,000 Ukrainians who had arrived in the U.S., came through this volunteer program. It seemed Americans had an appetite to welcome strangers from overseas into their homes and communities. The newly established Welcome Corps appeared poised to capitalize on this enthusiasm. But it's not clear if this generosity will extend beyond the Afghan evacuation and the invasion of Ukraine, singular events that captured the attention of the public. 
Would Americans also welcome Venezuelan or Sudanese refugees in the same way? Resettlement is not an easy task. It requires a lot of moving parts. That's Aidan Batar of Catholic Community Services. We heard his story way back in episode one. Batar and his family were refugees from Somalia when they arrived in the U.S. in 1994. And he now has over two decades of resettlement experience. If you don't have an organization, a backbone organization, it's going to be very hard for, for, for someone to sponsor a family and uh, put them in their basement or, or to live with them and then provide all the services. They have to find a housing. They have to do all, all the things that our agencies do, uh, you know, I think is going to be a challenge. Rent alone is going to be a lot. Batar says he's all for volunteer help, but he thinks it makes more sense to coordinate with the resettlement agencies that are already in place. Why reinvent the wheel, he says, when the agencies already have the infrastructure, the staffing, the warehouses of donated items, and the training. People in our community who have the time to volunteer and to support the organizations, I highly encourage those individuals to work as a volunteer with the resettlement agencies, so that way uh, the volunteers, our staff, we're all working on the same goal. What Batar says makes a lot of sense. But then I think about Jenny's neighborhood, how they were able to come together and rise above these challenges. By all accounts, it was a success for everyone involved, although admittedly they didn't have to pay for the family's rent. I wonder if there's something to be learned from the citizens who stepped up to fill the gaps for both Afghans and Ukrainians in this country. Is there a special role for regular community members? Ask Jenny about it. Yes, I think there's definitely like this niche need for friendship, for someone to notice that you are a fellow human being and to listen and to help you solve problems that are difficult for you to solve because you're in a different country and trying to adapt to a different language. But Jenny acknowledges the need for structure, that for anything to be effective, someone has to organize it. She says the resettlement agencies like Catholic Community Services have volunteer opportunities not so different from what she and her neighbors have been doing. It essentially is the same thing that I'm doing, but they just need like lots, 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 lots more people to volunteer. I imagine their (sighs) programs are sort of designed so like working people can say, oh, I can make this commitment of a couple hours a week or something. So they make it so it's doable for people. Right. But, I think so. But what you're doing is maybe not doable for some people. Right? Like what I'm personally doing yeah. is not doable for anyone unless they want a full-time job that doesn't pay anything. <laughs> Jenny is bringing up a point I want to dig into here. Most of us don't have the resources or, let's be honest, the will to devote so much of our lives to helping So what is driving Jenny? After about a year of interviewing her, she starts to open up to me about why she does what she does. A stay-at-home mother of five children, she says raising kids is fulfilling, but in modern America, it's also a solitary endeavor. I found um, my role and my, my job as a mother to be fairly lonely. It's a lot of personal work that you can't necessarily do with other people. And I didn't realize it, but I think I built up sort of like a bitterness toward reaching out and 
and like making friendships because of just like the the failure to have that community. And with people moving for work and more of our social interaction migrating online, it's only gotten worse. And so you don't have this like opportunity to like dig deep and uh, and just have those like really meaningful personal relationships. And my loneliness and how I felt, it's an epidemic. Like I, I notice other people having that same look about them and that same way of walking through life and not wanting to get too close to their neighbors because maybe they're just going to be hurt more. (laughs) It's just going to make them feel even lonelier somehow. We're sort of like in this place where we're all stuck. Jenny and her family moved to Cedar Hills on the edge of the mountains in Utah at the very beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, a time that only increased the isolation. She met people at church and walking her dog, but she says the relationships didn't go very deep. As I started to serve and and to help my new Afghan friends, I've just felt like gradually over time, just becoming happier and happier and happier. And having a level of deep relationships with them that is surprising and so beautiful. So yeah, it's totally changing me. And I've seen it happening for all the other people who are helping as well. It's the most wonderful thing. Maybe for some of you, this is a little uncomfortable to hear, that the suffering of some could bring happiness and fulfillment to others, especially those who seem to have so much already. But there's another way to look at it. Our newest neighbors fleeing their homes and stripped of everything they own have reminded us of a fundamental truth that we've forgotten. We need each other. And helping is not just a one-way street. Mohammed and Aziza let Jenny and her neighbors into their lives in a meaningful way. But the situation wasn't meant to be permanent. The Ninos, who never expected to be landlords, had plans for their basement, which they had put on pause when the family moved in downstairs. They had been there for about, what, eight months, about. And their lease was coming up in December. We had a a woman in the neighborhood that um, does a lot of a lot of community help and she came in and she begged me to let them stay and I was already planning on letting them stay but I was like what's the reason she's like I've never seen our neighborhood pull together so tight they've been able to find a common connection and really bind together and she's like please like she literally was begging me like what would it take to have them stay because I don't want to see them leave like there's so much good happening as much as they may need us we also need them she said that like they've done more benefit for us than any of us have done for them and that was really inspiring so the Ninos extended the lease for a few more months in that time Mohammed was able to complete some major dental work his eight-year-old daughter continued at the school that she loved and Aziza got her driver's permit but all the while They were trying to figure out where they would go next. They preferred to stay in the neighborhood, but they were also confident they would be okay in Salt Lake City, closer to family and some of their friends. They tried for several months to find a place to rent near Cedar Hills, but they couldn't find anything in their price range. In April 2023, just before their son turned one year old, 
they found a subsidized apartment in Salt Lake City. He says the rent is the only reason they moved. Otherwise, you would have stayed if you could. Yes. In fact, Mohammed's eight-year-old daughter told her father she wasn't going to move. She was not happy, he says. She told him, I'm not going. I want to stay here. When they came to the U.S., he said his daughter didn't know the alphabet in English. But with the help of the Nino's oldest daughter of the same age, in just a year, she learned to read and write. Mohammed says he wants his landlords to know how grateful his family is for their support. Now that they've moved back to Salt Lake City, I asked Mohammed if he misses anything about Cedar Hills. He says he misses his old neighbors. He also misses being surrounded by wilderness. He remembers coming back from work at night and seeing deer grazing in the neighborhood. It was a nice place, he says. So since you came to the U.S., did you ever feel alone or lonely here? Not that much, Mohammed says. Of course, you miss your family. But I have lots of friends, he says. But his wife, Aziza, who's been staying home with their three children, has a different response. How about for you? Did you ever feel alone? Yes, sometimes, uh, every day, uh, I'm in the house. No job, no party. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes. Every day she's in the house, she says. No job, no party. It reminds me of what Jenny said about the loneliness of being a stay-at-home mom. And that's different than in Afghanistan. You would have more people around, more friends, family. Yes. Yeah. So American life is kind of more lonely. Yes. Jenny told me that she worries about the Afghan women here, that they're isolated. They're not getting the same interaction as many of the men who are out working and taking English classes. She says Aziza only started driving and going places outside the house with encouragement from the neighbors. Aziza misses the English classes she took in Cedar Hills while other people babysat her kids. And she's hoping to start a class in Salt Lake City. She wants to get a driver's license, but since moving, she no longer has neighbor friends to take her out for driving practice. Overall, Aziza says it's better in this country because in Afghanistan right now, women don't even count as human. But here we are free, she says. We can live as we want. Both Aziza and Mohammed say America is their home now, and they would not choose to go back. Their children are safe and able to go to school. Aziza says it's a better life. Her husband goes to work and comes home. And she doesn't have to worry whether or not he's still alive. David and Aurora Nino say the neighborhood without Mohammed and Aziza's family is not the same. They miss the smell of fresh bread baking downstairs and the sound of children playing in the backyard. Aurora says even though she has four kids, it feels empty without them. Siblings are around each other all the time, but when you have your best friend that you share a backyard with, there's something magical about that. When one of the kids would frolic out, the other kids would frolic out and start playing. And so when no one else shows up, it's it's really lonely, I think. Aurora says their daughter, Melia, now nine years old, cried for several days after they left. It's been a really big change. Like, Melia would just walk downstairs and just 
spontaneously start crying because it was like, oh, and this is where we would play this, and this is where we had all these memories. I mean, she is probably one of the hardest things she's been through is having her best friend leave. The family had been gone for over a month when the neighbors invited them back for a party. Aurora deliberately did not tell her daughter, Melia that her best friend would be there. I wanted it to be a surprise because she's been begging me to bring her up there and, and we've had tons going on. So when I heard it was happening, I was like, oh, I think this could be... I love surprises and so I know she'd be really excited. The party was supposed to be in a park outdoors, but as dark clouds gathered and the wind picked up, there was a last-minute decision to move it to the local LDS church. It was a multi-purpose celebration for high school seniors in the neighborhood who were graduating. It was also the weekend of Cinco de Mayo. Inside, everybody lined up for tacos with several crockpots of homemade beef and chicken. Mohammed, Aziza, and their three children are sitting around a table. The baby is one-year-old, his head is shaved, and he's wearing a very small bow tie, button-up shirt, looking around, curious. We're ready to start, so welcome to our Cinco de Mayo's. When the Ninos arrive, their daughter Melia comes through the door, peers through her purple glasses, spots her friend, who she hasn't seen in more than a month, and gasps. Daddy! She looks up at her father as she jumps up and down. Daddy! The surprise was a good one. She runs over and squeezes her friend. As soon as the adults turn away, she grabs her hand and pulls her out of the room to play. Later, Melia's mother, Aurora, and I find them playing outside, and we sit together under a tree by the parking lot. I heard that it, you didn't know you were going to see each other tonight. Did you know? I was so surprised that she was here because I didn't know she was going to be here because she lived all the way up in Salt Lake. We kept saying she she only lives like 30 minutes away. We'll see her again. We'll see her again. But you hadn't seen each other, right, until tonight? Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> She's giving you a look. Mom, you should have brought me up sooner. At nine years old, Melia is already a master of the side eye. When she left... How did you feel? Um, I felt really sad because she was like my one of my best friends and she lived in our basement, so I was really sad when she left. Because you were playing together like... Almost every day. Well, yeah, almost every day except for Sunday. Mm-hmm. You'd come home from school and do what? I would come home from school and help her read and then we would play together. Your dad said that you learned English from her. Is that true? Mm-hmm. Yeah? How did you learn? Because you've only been here a little more than a year, right? Every day she was coming to my house and helping me. As the party comes to a close, Melia begs her mother for more time with her friend. Please, can we keep on playing for like 30 or 20 more minutes? But Aurora ushers the family through goodbyes. Okay, tell, tell everybody goodbye and they pile in the car to go back home. Mohammed and Aziza's family get on the freeway headed in the opposite direction. Bye. 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 Nice to see you again. Best of luck. You have to tell me. Though they no longer live in the same neighborhood, the families stayed in touch. At the end of the summer, Aurora sent me a text with pictures of the two nine-year-old girls playing at a museum in Salt Lake City, 
digging for fossils in a sand pit and posing together in front of the open jaws of a huge model shark. There's another picture of the kids back together in Cedar Hills, jumping on the trampoline in their swimsuits while being sprayed by a hose, laughing in pure joy. What I've realized, Aurora wrote, is these families don't just need connections for the first few weeks or months or years that they're here. They need a community that will be there for them for life. As for Arif and his family, they've moved apartments but still can't afford the rent on his wages. In an encounter at a church tag sale, Jenny got connected to a woman interested in helping. This woman met Arif's family just in time to assist with the delivery of their baby girl. Both mom and baby are in good health. She's been raising funds among her neighbors to help the family pay their rent until they can get on their feet. Next time on Stranger Becomes Neighbor, the personal becomes political. You know, the, the people I was trying to help get out of the evacuation, I, I was only able to get out five of the 25 people that I was personally trying to assist to get on flights. 19 of them are still back there in hiding. One of them's dead. We have this ethos in the military, you're supposed to leave it better than you found it. This is the only way I know how to leave it better than I found it. And we'll find out what happens for some of the people we've met in this podcast. I'm personally so proud of myself. It's not easy, but I, I did it. This family's life was in danger. The Taliban had been to their home searching for people to hurt and kill. If they don't get approved for asylum, they would be sent back to Afghanistan. For me, that's very big news. Stranger Becomes Neighbor is researched, written, and hosted by me, Andrea Smartin. Audio production and sound design by Aaron Mason. Bonus content produced by Nina Ernest. Mixing and mastering by Trent Sell. Executive producer is Cheryl Worsley. My thanks to our editorial team, Amy Donaldson, Dave Colley, Ben Kiebrick, Josh Tilton, Ryan Meeks, Felix Bunnell, and Kellyanne Halverson. Special thanks to Tanya Vea, Stephanie Avis, Candice Madsen, Matt Elgrin, and Toss Patterson. Each week, we're releasing bonus content with extended interviews if you subscribe on Apple Podcasts. For this week's bonus episode, we talked to a former CIA intelligence operations manager who started an organization dedicated to supporting Afghan allies from the zero units, like Mohammed and Arif, now living in the U.S., she says many of them are struggling to keep up hope while their immigration status in America remains uncertain. If you're unable to subscribe and you'd like to support the show, please give us a rating and write a review. It really does help others to discover us. For pictures and more information, find us at StrangerBecomesNeighbor.com. Stranger Becomes Neighbor is a production of KSL Podcasts.